Welcome to the Best Boss Ever podcast. I'm your host, Christine LaPerriere, president of Leader in Motion. On this show, we're going to gossip about the best boss you ever had. We're going to hear stories about things that they did that helped you feel valued, helped you feel engaged, and really inspired you. We want to hear about the bosses that changed the way you look at everything. If you want to hear more, join me at christinelaperriere.com and sign up for our newsletter, The Whip. Today, I'm interviewing Serena. So I'm going to have Serena introduce herself. But what I love most is when somebody sees and hears the show and they get inspired and it gets their wheels turning and they start thinking about their best boss. So Serena reached out to the show. She has a great story. And I'm on pins and needles because I haven't heard the story yet either. So I'm super excited. So Serena, welcome. Thank you, Christine. What an honor to be here. I think it's so fantastic that you are disrupting sort of the leadership sphere and looking at what's the positive quality instead of, and I've been very guilty of this, hammering away at what I don't like about former bosses. So thank you for that. And so I'd like to say hello to everybody today. My name is Serena Qualia. I am currently a VP strategy at TCS Marketing Systems. We are one of Canada's leading sales advisory groups to pre-construction real estate land development. So we do mixed use, residential, commercial, retail, hospitality, et cetera. And I also actually post-pandemic have sort of started a project on the side to help empower women in business, regain confidence that they lost through the pandemic and to empower them with competitive advantage based on what I have learned in my former career as a professional dancer and my current career in city building. Amazing. Those sound like great day job and a great side project for you. Amazing. So we're just going to dive straight in. We'll go right to the heart. So tell us about your best boss. So my best boss ever was the first boss I ever had. And it's actually not just one boss. It was the entire C-suite and management team. I did a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Modern Dance at the University of Utah. And the week I graduated, I went to Las Vegas just for audition experience. And I auditioned for this $100 million show at the MGM Grand. And after a series of callbacks, I was selected as an original cast member in this $100 million show starring a Broadway star, Michael Crawford, who was the Phantom of the Opera on Broadway. Oh, wow. It had fire-breathing dragons, animatronics designed by George Lucas's shop of, you know, Star Wars fame. The sets were so large, we needed NASA technology to move these monstrous sets. So it was really, you know, this immersion into this other world of basically (laughs) insanity uh, at the largest hotel at the time in the world and the largest show that had ever been produced. So They were my best boss, being that we were, you know, in an entertainment department and we were kind of in our own silo because, you know, obviously we're not housekeeping, we're not marketing, we're not in the casino, we're not in the amusement park. So we had our direct reports and our, you know, our our choreographer, our our artistic director, the director, the producer, which ran our show and ran our rehearsals like drill sergeants. But they were the yin and there was this yin and yang. There was this perfectionist, you have, you know, quality assurance, the show, the everything had to be perfect. But the C-suite, the management team, 
had implemented policies that absolutely gave every single employee, 7,500 employees at that site, confidence and security in our wellness and well-being. So I want to say that this mixture of the quest to be the best, the best show, the best product, the best performers, the best customer experience mixed with, you know, this a management team that um, through its HR policies, and I'm going to talk about that in a second, they provided our us, the employees, this amazing 360 degree holistic approach to to our careers. We had intellectual, mental wellness, emotional, physical, occupational, financial, social, and environmental wellness. So Christine, I and I in that team, I have been striving to take elements of their policy and their, you know, management style and their empathy and their again quest to this quest for competitive advantage and and kind of execute that with my own teams over the years. My mind is boggled. So you're going to have to explain how on earth do they do that? Because, you know, people see those things as competing, right? They see those things as the strive for the best and holistic wellness as in direct competition. So I'm dying to know, how did they do it? You nailed it. Like this woo-woo kumbaya, actually, Christine, is competitive advantage. It is at the root of competitive advantage. So they did it. So, so for example, I'm going to give you the first example. So we weren't union. We were just independent contractors. And at the time, MGM said, we will enable all employees to have a $5 baby. Okay. So health benefits, dancers, housekeepers, people at car dealers, you know, the people that didn't make uh, huge salaries were able to, without health insurance, um, be respected, keep their jobs and deliver a baby for $5. Like they, the MGM paid all of the expenses around. And, and you have to understand in the Canada, we assume that maternity coverage, et cetera, is just, it, it, it's a given. I know we pay for that through taxes, but it's a given in the States not. So one of the thinking was, well, people are just going to have these babies and they're going to quit and they're never going to come back to their jobs. But the opposite happened. Dancers, housekeeping, security, whatnot, went away, had their babies and they came back and they became lifers for MGM Grant because of the, you know, the commitment to their health and well-being and their building a family and the supports. So that was one example of, of this investment in confidence and security of their employees. The second thing I wanted to point out was, again, you know, when I worked there, this was early on in in the HIV crisis. So one of my male dance partners, he was one of the first in the era to test positive for HIV. And at the time, there wasn't a lot of, you know, data solutions, yeah, solutions, right? So he could have been let go. The argument could have been made that he was endangering the cast because we sweat all over each other. You spit sometimes when you're singing and dancing and insurance didn't cover the treatment. And MGM Grand took a stand that it would it would help him with his treatment path. And it stood by him and it set a precedent like this was these were uncharted territories. And we're talking about this was one dancer, you know, in 2022. MGM Resorts International, their revenue was 13 billion and their annual gross profit was $6 billion. 
and they cared. And I don't know what it was when I worked there, Sure, but, but one dancer, they went out on a limb. Like they, they changed this paradigm shift for that one dancer. And another example, which I think is really where this woo-woo kumbaya is competitive advantage. So our stage, our we had the largest stage in the state of Nevada and bigger. it was a bigger stage than any of the stages in Broadway. Like the sets would not have fit on any in any theaters right. in New York City. And we had all this dry ice and we had, you know, all these special effects and fire and blah, blah, blah. And so the HVAC system in the theater was so large and complicated that when it we had a dry ice curtain wall. So because the stage was so big, they didn't have time to like have curtains close and they like do a set change. Mm-hmm. It did it behind dry ice. And the dry ice had this chemical reaction when it was super, super hot outside in the desert. And it created its own weather system in the theater and it snowed on stage. So <laughs> it, this <laughs> happened in rehearsals and you know, a lot of the wow. long-term dancers that had done other shows in Las Vegas and had a lot of experience, they were like, this is unacceptable. And and because we weren't union, you know, we kind of, those of us that were newbies, <laughs> we kind of just went along with what these seasoned professionals were expressing, you know, that this is unacceptable, people are going to get hurt. So long story short, we had this huge, huge show one night and there were all these famous people from Hollywood and who's who and influencers and media. And of course that night it snowed on stage. And so the elder cast members were like holding their arms up in the wings, like nobody is going on stage. So this whole number, it was like a three minute, four minute number. Like there's light shows and effects and there were no dancers on stage and no singers on stage. At the end of the show, we went downstairs and all of us who weren't this season professionals thought we're going to lose our jobs. We're going to get fired. Like this is, this right. is not okay, right? We just put the nail in the coffin. We're done. <laughs> We're done. We're never going to work in this town again. Right. We completely like, so C-suite comes downstairs. There were probably 10 men in suits and ties. Accounting was there. Security was there. HR was there. And we were prepared to get fired, our, our walking papers. And instead, the CEO said, I'm livid. And I'm embarrassed and you humiliated me. And I want to take this as a teaching moment. I'm going to put that aside right now. And I want to teach you a little bit about economics. You didn't just humiliate me that that's not the point here. I want to tell you how you impacted your colleagues. You served the beverages, the food and beverage in the theater, the cocktail servers who are not going to make tips tonight. And they went on this poll economics lesson about how our decision, our split second decision impacted, yes, the sweet sweets and probably some revenue and some corporate reputation. But he really, they really focused on how it impacted the totality, the holistic staff and the meet their livelihoods and that, you know, their ability to how it impacted them financially and emotionally. And the best part was the C-suite said, we really want to take this teaching moment to understand and let you know that we're going to work with engineering to ensure this will never happen again. And they pulled engineering down. And so engineering then kind of got read the right act. Like, how could you, how could you have missed that calculation? Right. Dancers in debt jeopardy. And it just became, again, this kumbaya 
communication, all the silos were broken down and we had this amazing, it was probably a two and a half hour session to communicate. So this was like, I, I mean, coming right out of university, I had no, nothing to compare it to, but now I've had 20 years, you know, in management and other corporate situations, how I can't even imagine that level of patience and that level of commitment to solving problem solving in real time. And, you know, the, the fact that marketing had to go back out to all these guests and say, you know, we're giving refunds and we understood the implications of that. And we all kept our jobs. And we actually had way more respect for our leaders, right? Because we learned so much and we learned, you know, it wasn't just about us and our like, oh, I'm going to fall down and potentially break my spine, but this really impacts every department. And so that singular piece, I think I have in all my years post and in working, you know, transitioning into business and working corporate, it's the single piece that I do not see. And yes, right. The, the interconnectedness of, and the interrelatedness of all the departments working off the same song sheet. I am just floored by that story. It is so cool to me. I've never heard anything quite like it. And, you know, I used to launch, you know, my career started as an engineer at Chrysler. And so I was responsible for JD powers and I was responsible for how the customer interfaced with the vehicle once it was shipped but I also worked in the plant. And so, you know, what I, I've i never seen in the way that you said that story, we were so siloed that anytime there was a problem, it was more who to shoot. Yes. Christine. It was the who do you shoot? A hundred percent. It was like, pull the engineer out here and let's shoot them. Oh, it must be quality or it must be design or it must be manufacturing. But it wasn't what I really think is so powerful in the story, the way you gave this example is like, it sounds like they brought everyone together. And then they said, like, I need you to think about how you're you're impacting things. But then they turn to engineering and they go, I need you to think about how you're impacting things, you know? And so it wasn't like the dancers were, sure, you guys made one decision and that wasn't, you know, it didn't go well, but that they recognized all of how everybody influenced that, that big giant fail. Everybody failed that night. Your who do you shoot is. So uh, what I've experienced, I mean, I've worked for some great people in land development, but, but we find that too with our, you know, construction doesn't, you know, decor center might say sell an island and a kitchen and an underline and it's not, you know, on the construction notes and then construction's like, then the, the person moves into the condo or the house and they're like, why is my kitchen look? And then it's, who do you shoot? Christine, that permeates so many industries. And I think that is why this particular experience at MGM Grand. I mean, I honestly, the physio, our, our cast physiotherapist was there giving data on, well, if the dancers fell and then they have back problems, then this is what it's going to cost. And this is what it's going to cost them personally. And this is what it's going to cost the you, the business, and then the engineering departments like, you know, okay, well, this went wrong. And then everyone was there. Sound and lighting designs were there. Right. The department was there the custodial, like the people who had to mop up the snow on the stage. Yes. Right. Right. They had to, they had extra billable hours. So like this management team, like knowing how balance sheets and pro formas work now, I mean, 
they were so super responsive to like calculate the losses across the board and how it's preventable. And okay, there was that side of it, but they really were invested in it not happening again. They were invested in keeping their talent, like we were known as the talent, right? The entertainers happy and safe. They were invested in keeping engineering you know, employed and risk aversion, like not having to face risk and insurance policies and all that. Sure. Right. So those calculations were going, you could see it in real time. These people were like, these are super smart people, but they never made us feel like we were numbers. And I think that's the difference since with some of the bosses I've worked in like residential land development, when we're trying to blow out a thousand units in a high rise condo, and we're trying to move everyone in, you know, like you're occupying whatever 600 people is moving in on the same day. And I, I did have a, a purchaser say to me once when I was working with sales, marketing and customer care, they're like, you're just treating me like I'm a number. You just want my occupy, you know, you just want my all my checks to clear today. I am not a number. This is the biggest expense I've ever made in my life. Right. I was like, wow, that difference that, you know, to calibrate the business side, the numbers side with right people behind these numbers, you know, I think that's incredible. I think it's incredible. And it's just such a great testament to what happens when you decide that we all failed today, right? We all failed. And so we're all going to fix it. And every single one of you, you know, is going to figure out what part you played in this failure. You're right. Because too, like, I mean, I was probably one of the least like that. I was right out of school. So like, that was my first job, 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 real job, like paying job. And I, at that moment too, was like, well, I'm feeling strong armed. Like I, I probably would have gone out on stage and danced while it's snowing and not really thought much of it if I fell down, whatever. So even at that level of minutia, like, you know, I'm just being led by these cast members that maybe don't have my best interest. Like, you know, there's all the mm-hmm. independence and then the collectiveness and then the you're reporting up. And then the so all these different dynamics. And we really had to, to your point, all of us sat there downstairs with our rehearsal area, like three stories down in the basement. Like it was this massive, like this huge and we all sat on the floor and we none of us left that night until to your point we talked it through we <laughs> there were tears there were here's the problem here's how it could have played out here's the implications here's what we're going to do so it doesn't play out like how we can fix it here, here all the note takers like all <laughs> you know they were they were documenting this and it's interesting Christine because because of that that kind of convergence of problems and management and problem solving. And I wrote my master's thesis actually about my time at MGM Grand. I went back and did an ethnography about this convergence of, you know, performing arts, built form architecture, technology, how it all works in placemaking. That's actually how I ended up in land development. But the point being, when I went back, to MGM years later, whoever was left there in management was like, Serena, I want to go on record and be part of the interview of your, you know, your research. Yeah. They actually read my thesis. Oh, that's so cool. (laughs) That's amazing. Isn't that hilarious? Yeah. 
What a cool story though. Like I said, I'm immediately, and even, you know, the $5 baby, like what a, you know, I didn't know where you were going with that when you first said it. And I was like, now I'm listening. I'm going, I can only imagine how the feeling of just knowing that that's how your company views it. Or, you know, when I think of what the eighties would have been like for somebody who was first diagnosed with HIV and, you know, what horrible experiences people who were diagnosed with that early went through to think that the company, you know, took care of them and said, you know, Hey, this is who we are. Like, like you said, $6 billion in profit. And why should they care? Right. And to your point too, uh, your insight actually really, it's made me think the $5 baby, they actually, that was a HR corporate, that was a way to gain competitive advantage in the marketplace. They MGM set out to, because at the time, the Mirage, the Bellagio, New York, New York, like all these, the Luxor, the, like these big mega resorts were biting on MGM's heels, right? And they mm-hmm. were cutting into market share. And MGM made a conscious decision that part of their recruiting technique was this $5 baby. They wanted the best, the brightest, the most visionary. They wanted long-term employees. They didn't want churn. And so the, someone, some analyst somewhere did the math, right? And yeah. figured if we treat our employees with deliver what they want, they will stay with us. Amazing. Counterintuitive, but it, but it worked. I had girlfriends and my castmates who were there for 15 years. Dancing. Right. I think, you know, the thing that's landing to me while I'm thinking about what you're saying, because I'm really having a massive epiphany too. It's like you can hold people to this excruciatingly high level of performance if you care about them like to no end. Do you know what I mean? I love how you sum that up because our, my direct Gail Siegler, she was our uh, assistant choreographer. Our choreographer was from London. He did tons of West End shows. He did chess. He did all these things, but on the ground, on the boots, like every day, you know, we had notes, we had criticisms. We were like, it was, we were raised that way though. And competitive dance, you're like, it's, you're trying to achieve perfection. Perfection. And, yep. Yeah. And the, the quality assurance on that, like she, she was a drill sergeant, but because we were all raised in that sort of that mindset, we, okay, we would be grumpy about it some days, but it was to your point, the bigger overarching backdrop, there was this big hug, right? (laughs) This big, you know, we're giving you, we might be really hard on you with your performance notes and you're not hitting your mark. And we're going to, you know, and we're going to tell you, we're going to be critical on these 10 points, but just know that you also have the best physiotherapist in the state downstairs accessible 24 hours a day. You also have XYZ PQ, right? So there was this equilibrium of I'm going to go to work and perform, give 100% every day. And I am going to be rewarded for it. Oh, here's another interesting point too. They, in our welcome packages, like when you checked in with HR, they gave us this booklet, the AGM booklet, the, you know, and here's how to invest. 
And here's how shares work. And here's how we want you to buy some shares so that you come to the AGM so you have a vote and you have a voice. And here's why it's important for you to have a voice. And here's how we want to help you. We, we don't want you to gamble on our properties and we want you to save your money and do like, I mean, this was, it was kind of lost on me at the time because I was young. I was like right out of school. Fortunately, my dad was like, Serena, buy some, sh buy 10 shares and then you can go to this meeting. And so I did. And then my, some of my castmates did. And like, this is how they, they were invested in us to, to grow financially, intellectually, emotionally. That is really something. I can't believe it. I'm like listening to this going, this is really cool. I haven't heard a story like this one in a while. Well, it's so interesting because you who came through with a master's degree in engineering and now you are helping, you know, kind of holistic development and in leaders and in business owners and helping people level up. It's so interesting to me because, because coming, I, I come from the opposite, right? I came from the soft sciences side and ended up in a business that it is all just numbers, 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 revenue, balance sheet, balance sheet, balance sheet. And so the blending of the best of both worlds really creates amazing, amazingness. I think you probably see that yourself. Absolutely. That's what I'm just, like I said, I'm just really very impressed. And I just, I just wrote down in my notes, I was really thinking about this. Extreme performance requires extreme wellness. Yes. Like, what if you believed that? Like, it sounds like they believed it so much that it became the way they drove. Like, so we have got to take such good care of you because the level of performance that we're expecting, like, it cannot be your wellness that is the drain on you. You know what? I have, a, I have the complete opposite. So I jumped on some cruise ships and did some cruise ship contracts just whatever, travel, see the world, whatnot. And one of the choreographer slash producers of one of our shows, and this was a, this was a reputable big ship, big budget. I was written up. I got in trouble on that contract because I didn't drink with customers because I didn't drink alcohol. Like at MGM ground, we were drug tested and we couldn't show up with a hangover, et cetera. And on this cruise ship, they were like, you have to, you know, participate and be friendly with the guests. And I, Serena, we want it. You don't drink. You know, I don't never see you with a drink in your hand sitting with the passengers. And I'm like, ha, like this to me, <laughs> I'm in this, you know, profession that demands elite physical performance. And I'm getting reprimanded for not drinking alcoholic beverages. So that one, I couldn't compute. I was like, this is not the place for me. That said, MGM resorts to your point wellness extended beyond you know the physical wellness of dancers or housekeepers or it's really interesting too we the the cafeteria was probably a, a city block it was on the it was two levels below you know the lobby was and it it was this massive escalator if you can think of these mega resorts in las vegas like the whole the whole floor was and it's a it's a, like a little city right so and 24 hours a day so it was unlimited. It was like you picture the big buffets in Las Vegas. That's what we had downstairs for for the cat for the get for the staff for the employees. So 
salad bars and ice cream bars and whatever, roast beef, whatever you wanted was down there. And constantly the C-suite, again, management was always getting paged because they were never in their offices. They were always talking to the staff in this cafeteria. And so this cafeteria, like we would all be like in our little islands, right? Like the performers would be with the performers and the car dealers would be with the car dealers and the pit bosses would eat with the pit bosses. And then management would just circle all these tables and like, how's the food? What are you hearing on the floor? What are you getting pushed back from? And why don't you go sit with, why don't you go talk to some of the, you know, the singers over there? And why don't you meet the people in the amusement park? It was like it was like they were at hosting a party, right? <laughs> wow. But it makes so much sense, right? So that's where you build rapport. Like you build the ability to like and know the people that you work with. Exactly. And do you know, I just read on LinkedIn, the CEO of Starbucks is now working, said he's going to work for half a day, I think a month or something in, in his stores and in Starbucks. So he can get a feel of the floor and the flow and what custom, what his, the consumers want and what the problems are. And, and that is, that is what these best bosses, in my opinion, did way back in the day to turn this business into a, you know, such that it can have an annual gross profit of 6 billion a year. Right. Right. And have, you know, I mean, it's amazing. I think it's so great. And it's like, you know, they, they kind of debunked silos, the ivory tower, the, you know, some of these classic things that we, so many of us in business, we just learned to accept a lot of that. It's like, we, most of us accept the fact that we don't meet the CEO of most businesses that we might work with and interact, you know, we're used to like, oh, well, it's procurement's fault. That didn't work. And everybody shoots them. You know, <laughs> it's like the, that, that day they become the ones that get in trouble for that. And so I think it's just very interesting that they debunked the fear that what if we treated our people with extreme wellness, would it be in competition with the performance? And like they said, we're going to, we're going to debunk that, you know? Yes. That's so well put. That's so well summarized. Like right down to the point, like, I don't know what a counts receivable does in a hotel. Like I don't, but they wove it all, the interrelatedness of it all together. Like we knew that all of that employee at the next table in that cafeteria had a purpose and we had, we hoped that they were fulfilled in, you know, that role. And, and, you know, they too, like I have worked in other properties where we, you know, the staff wasn't permitted to go onto the casino floor and you weren't permitted to go to the boxing match or the, the entertainment. And at MGM Grand, they were like, they would give tickets to the valets. They would give tickets to the housekeeping that had, you know, the, the girls that are scrubbing the, the bathtubs, like they treated, right? Like big ticket items. They, it was that was really special. That was really special. That's amazing. That is amazing. I love this. Okay. So just to go back now, when you think of, you know, I'm going to go to the question that kind of is really sticking in my mind. So when we're busy investing in people, creating these best bosses, there's always a question around what's the return on investment. So, you know, why would we spend all this money to help build these great leaders and run all these wonderful programs and everything else, right? What is the return on investment? 
If you had to guess, I know it's not an easy thing for you, but you know, like given the, you know, this was a while back, but if you had to guess when you look at the businesses that you're interacting with now, what is the return on investment of working for a best boss versus a mediocre one? So output and productivity of employees, I can't say quantify with a percentage or a dollar value, but just having uh, managed, having had terrible bosses and have been, been a VP for those terrible bosses. So being the sounding board of all the employees complaining about that terrible boss, I can say employee turnover is, is measurable. I had employees just stop coming to work, like didn't show up. I couldn't even find them. And they, they were, I can't do it another day. Like I'm, I'm, I'm having pies. I'm, I'm at the cottage and I'm never returning to Toronto. They basically drove me out of the workforce. I would say productivity and, and loyalty and going that extra mile, right? Like, and problem solving in interdepartmentally, like um, I was a VP for, for sales and marketing in, in land development for a lot of years, but there's so much crossover into customer care and what that customer journey is from the point of sale to when, you know, okay, they've got the, they own the condo, but it's getting built for, you know, it takes five years to build the thing. And so the communication breakdown between the, you know, they got their AP, they signed their APS and they, they own a condo to not hearing from a developer for two to three to five years, that whole thing. And then they, they get a letter three, six weeks before they're supposed to move in saying, you're, you know, you're occupying this condo, it's yours. And then not helping with move. It caused poor, poor corporate reputation, which caused extreme burnout for anyone dealing on customer service side, like customer care and customer service. So the, the churn there, the employee turnover was, was terrible. And the customer experience ultimately, and I worked pre-social media days and then social media days, right? Pre-social media days, you could manage that. You could keep a lid on it and you could, your, your, the goal was just to keep people out of court from suing. Now <laughs> there's Facebook groups and there's your, you know, and so the, the management of that, Christine, is what is the cost? The cost is the business and what people are willing to pay for what you're what you're offering versus your competitors. The entire customer journey, the entire customer experience, that's the cost. Are you are you with in land development? Are we going to sit with that inventory a long time because we have a crappy corporate reputation and we can't sell it, but the guy across the street can, right? So, what's the cost of borrowing money? What's the cost of training people? What's the cost of keeping unhappy customers off of social media. What does that cost you when you have to hire crisis communications PR managers? What does that cost you when you, they're going, you know, they're going on podcasts and they're, they're the, the worst boss podcast. They're going to talk about, well, I had this terrible experience. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. right. Well, and you see that in Glassdoor and some of these tools like LinkedIn, for sure, you know, people, you know, when you get fired, I mean, I, I just read somebody's post the other day and they were heartlessly let go due to downsizing and budget restrictions. Well, guess what? That person leaves a story about how upsetting that is. And it's not hard to click on their profile and find out where they just worked. <laughs> and it's like no, noted because when I hear stuff like that, I, I do think, why can you not be a classy organization and treat people with respect? Come on. 
Yeah. And I think to your point too, you know, I, I'm older, I'm 50. I'm so I came from the school of thought where you don't, you like the, the authority has power and that you just don't talk about your bad experiences or you don't air it out on LinkedIn, right? Like that. I just came through the generation where you just keep your dirty laundry to yourself. Yes. Totally. Right. And now it's, it's anything goes rightly or wrongly. I'm not here to make that argument, but it's, it is what it is. So it's interesting to see some former management that I've worked for didn't, didn't learn, didn't learn (laughs) when, when, you know, their brands were dragged on social media and they can't get their, their sales velocity slows down. If they've canceled projects, the people who are have now have no condo, they go to the Globe and Mail and there's a full, right. There's a there's a full page piece. So I think now more than ever, if I'm in management, I'm listening to you, Christine, and what you're reporting that you're hearing from these employees and middle managers. And I mean, if I'm leading a big company now more than ever, I want to understand, I want to hire you and understand how can I empower my people so that we all, A, stay afloat, B, the shareholders are happy, C, we can all earn our performance bonuses, D, we are happier people. Right. Amazing. So really quick, if what did you learn from your least favorite bosses? I learned... What that's a great question. What did I learn from my least favorite bosses? I learned that if you stay with the bosses that tend to be completely 1000% all about being obsessed with just the numbers, just the bottom line, and don't treat employees like people with emotions and needs and families and health issues that they might need a day off to take care of. It it can become emotionally abusive and overbearing. And if you stay there too long, it's very unhealthy. That unhealthiness seeps into like, you know, becomes a crisis of confidence. You and we internalize that we, we, we physically get sick, but it takes longer and longer to find, you know, those stories, the the belief in ourselves to, to be able to get back onto LinkedIn and say, you know, get out there and post with power kind, you know, the roads. So I would say in my experience, if, if, you know, the people out there are working with bosses that are eroding you, eroding you and your, your vision and your capabilities and your abilities, look elsewhere, move, get out, go, get out. Yeah. Go to where you're wanted, go to where you're appreciated. There are people like you, there are bosses like me and you and the people you Christine, that there are good bosses out there. Wholeheartedly. Don't like, it's not worth it. It's not. You know, it's funny because I always say that we vote with our dollar, right? So every time you spend money, you're voting for that company, you're voting for that leadership. And it's when I hear you say that, we're also voting with our employment. Yes. You know? So brilliant. Yes. Right? Like we're saying, hey, like if I work for you, that's because I support you and I believe in this company's mission and what they're doing and their leadership. And so, you know, vote with your time and energy as an employee. And just like you said, if the if you, the values don't align, 
move on somewhere else, go find a place because we're going to make being a horrible boss unsustainable if we vote with our employment. That You need to write a book on that. Honestly, that is brilliant. And write a book, Christine, write that down because I will, and I can be a case study for, for the person who, I mean, as great as MGM, I know this is the best boss podcast and I, I want to focus on that, but I, I, I have been at ground zero where I stayed with um, one company too long. Like I just, I just kept thinking it's going to change. They're going to change. We had, you know, things are going to change and it didn't. And I stayed there too long and it took me, it probably set me back to, honestly, I can quantify that one, two to four years of my like I, it took me, I was so beaten down when I left there and I didn't even leave on my own accord. Like I ended up getting pink slipped because they, they were like downsizing, but I'm like, what if downside, call it what you want. I got fired. Okay. And so that on top of, I knew I should have pulled the parachute that, you know, two years prior. So then there was the shame and the guilt and beating myself up. And so to everybody. It's not easy. It's awful when you go through that experience. And it's hard to change jobs and it's hard to, you know, you, okay, there's pays, whatever you need, you have this lifestyle, but it doesn't cost anything to look for work or to network when you're, uh, when you're unappreciated, right. And unhappy, like work, what is that saying? Love shouldn't hurt and neither should your job. Right. I like that too. I can't believe how much I enjoyed our conversation today, Serena. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me on your show. And thank you for all the great work you're doing and for all the inspiration that you are sharing. Thank you. Well, your story is going to inspire so many people. I'll be talking about this, I can tell you. So I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. And to all the listeners out there, all the best to you. If you want to hear more, join me at christinelaperriere.com and sign up for our newsletter, The Whip.